Hello audience, this is Tony's Talk. Uh, welcome back. Today we'll be discussing Atonement, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Four chapters of fun. Here I'm joined by... Jocelyn. And... Mary Colin. Jocelyn Arroyo, let's clarify. Now, um, let's first discuss chapter 1. How do we, uh, let's get those questions in. Okay, well, um, my question was, uh, if you compare Rhyme and Celia's parents to the Vincent parents, their cousin's parents, uh, what type of role models do the kids have, and how is it shown with the kids' behaviors? I'm going to let you lead off with this. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll answer it then if you don't have it. Okay, so I believe that, well, since the parents are divorced, the, uh, the cousin's parents... They don't, like, they act different. They're coming to the household to get a break from that. There's all the divorce stuff going down, so that's why they act in such a manner that they do. And for Cecilia and Brioni, they're, you know, they're not really spoiled, but they have a spoiled sense to them. And there's a big sense of class in this novel that I realized. I'd like to add on to that. Towards Brandy, they don't want to do the they don't want to do the, the play because they because it's like showing off Brandy showing off and they keep saying the word divorce and divorce over and over again because they don't know what that word means but they think that's like what they don't mean that they don't want to do it and they act a little bratty in a sense. I agree. What are your thoughts on that, Mary? Um, well, I kind of uh, agree with you guys. I was just going to add on that Bryony um, and Celia are, um, their mother like is very supportive of them. We can see that when Bryony shows mom their, her play, and she says like it's wonderful, and it's very supportive to her, and so that show and that kind of encourages her growth, and that's why Bryony's like, doing so well, and it's very... Um, mature for her age, whereas um, compared to Lola, Lola's very, I would say, self-centered, to be honest. She wanted the star role, even though she didn't really quite fit in with that role, and it kind of shows because her parents never give her attention, so I feel like she has to seek that out. Um, it was actually related to Mary's uh, statement. Uh, why does Lola has to be something that she isn't meant to be? For like when Bryony made the made her play The Trials of Arabella, she basically made that character describe her as her as ma- making Bryony the main role. And Lola comes in and says, "If you don't want to be Brian, if you don't want to be Arabella." I'll do it and I can be good at it. But when she does it, Bryony realizes that she's not meant to be because her, one, her hair and her freckles don't match the character's description. Two, she speaks with a monotone voice and she smiles and does these like, dramatic expressions at the wrong times, making Bryony just like, why is she doing this? And like, it's not right. I should be doing this role, not her. And she, and Lola is... Lola is um, putting out there that she's too adult-like for the audience and the adult to handle this. So you kind of lost me there. What was the question? Why does Lola has ha, Why does Lola have to be something that she's not meant to be? Well, they answer that. I think that's. Um, 
a big thing for someone her age. She's, you know, a, how old is she? She's teenager. like a teenager, but you know, most most people, she's probably gonna be put with more responsibility. Um, knowing that her, their parents sent her there, she's probably the one responsible for all the kids. And I think like any normal teenager, they'd want to get that sense of responsibility and adultship and have that tag on their I kind of um, see it as, like, Brandy did write the role to mirror herself, and instead of flat out saying, or thinking, I guess, um, no, this is me, like, I wrote this as myself, she kind of used, Brian uses, like, these small, subtle excuses, like, there's, she has freckles, and, um, trying to, like, push Lola away, but eventually giving it to Lola, but I feel like Lola really wanted the role due to, like, maybe seeing Briny as, um, having the perfect, like, life right now. Her parents are getting divorced, and Briny's parents aren't, and are being very, um, supportive and being welcoming to them, to, the, um, the cousins, and so I feel like maybe Lola sees the relationship between Bryony and Arabella, and she kind of wants to put herself in a role where she isn't um, currently right now. I agree with that. I agree. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just a big hit in the face for Bryony. Uh, and uh, there's a quote, I think, I have that kind of relates to that. Is the chasm that lay between an idea and its execution. That's what she realized as the group began to rehearse for the play. Alright, and so now it's time for my question. Let me pull that up for you guys. So, again, this is kind of similar to relationships in chapter one. Uh, so, comparing the interaction between Brioni and the cousins when rehearsing the play, uh, what does this show you as a reader about them? Can you please repeat the question again? So, looking at the interaction between Brioni and her cousins during like rehearsing for the play and stuff like that, what does that show you about Brioni and what does it show you about the cousins? Um, that Brioni wants a sense of order in a sense. Like, she wants everything to be perfect because her brother is coming home. And she wants the cousins to do the way she wants it, but the cousins don't want to do it because it's only a way of showing, of Brioni showing that she's the best at this and that she's doing this only for her way to show off her skills and that's it. Which makes the cousins like, what's the point of doing it if it's only not you joining us, us off but her. You could say like, Brioni's very controlling over um, things she's doing. I think um, for Jackson and I'm gonna pronounce the name wrong. Perut? I don't know. Okay. That's kind for, of for the brothers, the twins, um, they're very, they're acting like very. Um, when they're playing, so when they're portraying the characters, that acting, they're acting very like monotone. They're not very taking it serious. In the very beginning, they like didn't even want to do it, and so that kind of shows. And until Lola tell, tells them, like, you're doing this play, or else I'm telling the parents, that shows that, like, the boys are only going to um, respond to, like, strong leadership roles. So, going forward, if um, Ronnie doesn't, like, take control of them and tell them, like, hey, we're doing this, this is how it's going, I feel like the boys aren't very, like, going to be listening to her a lot, kind of making her whole dream, like, 
turn into a disaster, unfortunately. Well, my view on that, you know, a little personal experience, you know, being a boy. Yeah, tell us how's that, yeah, how's that like? You know, considering, like, you know, when I was younger, kid, kids, boys that age don't want to go around and spend their whole weekend of freedom doing a play. Again, this is like their kind of break from everything that's happening with the divorce going on in their life. So this is like, you know, time for them to relieve stress and, you know, just as I said, like being a normal kid, that's not what a boy wants to do. So I think that's a little more on them. But it's also, it also shows um, kind of Brioni's a little immaturity. When things don't go her way, she kind of freaks out, but I think you see definitely see her like need for order and how much how, how much of importance that is to her. Alright, now we move on to chapter two. Okay. So um a question I want to ask you guys for chapter two. Um although Robbie yeah. and Cecilia have known each other for a long time, like Robbie's been with her for a while. They even went to the same university. Cecilia, when talking to Robbie, only focuses on his flaws and his failures and everything wrong about him. Um, she kind of believes like she's better than him. She's smarter than him in every single way, uh, despite you know them going to the same university, growing up the same way. Um, what could this like constant hidden conflict Cecilia has with Robbie uh, represent about the social class issue in this book? Well, it's kind of like a, like a Romeo and Juliet relating it to Shakespeare. It's like, you know, two things that, you know, since social class was such a big deal in this book, like, you know, it wasn't normal for someone of her, you know, high class to marry the, your own gardener, you know? Um, so that wasn't the social norm. There was always why she couldn't and all these problems behind it. But... You know, in essence, that shows that she still cares. But um, I, I think that just shows the frustration and confusion between their relationship. Like, no one really knows what they want because of all outside factors. Well, didn't... Um, I I want to say that didn't Cecilia try to persuade Robbie not to finish out this, his career? Like, he wanted to be doing something for nursing-wise, I'm, I'm assuming? Yeah, he wanted to pursue a medical career. Medical career, but... Wait, just... Still yeah, her, um, Cecilia's dad's gonna pay for his, like, degree. Yeah. And, like, Cecilia persuades uh, Robbie not to finish out his career, worry, and Robbie takes that as, um, Cecilia's worried about her father's money going to, like, something that he's not gonna actually pursue. Then at, before, that he, she was all excited for it. You could think, like, maybe... Like, it's like a, like, I want to say it's like a love-hate mutual relationship. Like, there's, like, one something that she, yeah, she sees it her, sees his flaws as, like, a hate part. And a love part, like, the conflict thing, like, in the garden, it, regarding the base and stuff. Like, it's all about perspective. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in Atonement, Cecilia spends, uh, moving on to our next question, actually. Uh, she spent, Cecilia spends a while arranging and like rearranging the flowers in uh, the dreaded vase. And then uh, she goes to the garden, not the kitchen, to fill, the, fill this up with water. What do you think the vase could actually symbolize? Um, and what 
could the amount of time she spends perfecting and controlling what's going on around the vase uh, symbolize? So, first of all, I think just by going outside to fill up the vase instead of filling it up inside shows like she doesn't, you know, she's not like her sister, uh, Brioni. She doesn't care where the water comes from, you know, whether it comes from a fountain or wherever. And um, I think the, the, uh, the symbolism behind the vase, like they put a lot of details behind it like I remember they said like this is the vase passed down from their uncle like uncle Clem who like died in the war and uh I feel like that's the vase is a symbol for like their relationship because even when like it chips a piece chips off you still see like Cecilia like repairing the vase and the relationship you know so I don't know, it's like, I guess, comparing, but when comparing, like, Cecilia and Brioni, I think that, uh, I forgot to mention that, like, it's like order versus chaos when you look at both of them. Um, in my opinion, I'm going to have to agree with you on that, Tony. On um, one part regarding the vase and the water. In my opinion, I feel like Cecilia only went out to the, gar the garden to fill out the vase with water from the fountain. It was only to get Robbie's attention. Because, like, as I said, they have a real relationship, like, as a vase, as a relationship. And both pieces chipped off together, and she, both of them tried to go in, but she went in to get the pieces back and glue them back together. So I'm saying that the relationship is like a hard one, a pain hard to get, basically. It's a game of cat and mouse, in my opinion. Um, I was kind of thinking, if we go to how to read literature like a professor, um, it kind of, the vase reminded me like instantly of like the uterine symbols and uh, her controlling it so much, kind of like controlling the flowers and how they looked and um, going outside to the garden to get the water like going out into nature and getting the more pure form of water instead of filtered from the kitchen sink. Um, it kind of, for me, like, I felt like it was representing um, how even though Cecilia's life is kind of chaotic, like her room's a mess and everything, um, it, this one symbolizes like she's kind of in charge of her like feminine, her femininity. Like she knows who's like, who she's gonna marry. She's like going to college. Um, when like, when you said the Romeo and Juliet kind of forbidden love between her and Robbie, I feel like that's a big point that she's kind of conflicted about. Um, so even though like she can't control everything, she can't kind of marry their gardener, uh, she has like some ability to control. And so when they go to the, when she goes to the garden and fills up the vase with the water, it's, uh, I feel like it felt it was very symbolic of her like, being in charge of um, what's going on in regards to like her and so, yeah. um, we can move on to chapter three now unless you guys have anything else you want to add on well I, just in addition like the water also you know of course probably showed like rebirth you know I mean, that's obvious you know what water shows so for chapter three a question I have I said in chapter three a big quote it's that stood out to me I believe on page 60 was the quote here it is um, truth had become as ghostly as invention 
What do you guys think this line means? And what do you think this tells us about the narrator's purpose in writing? Can I read the quote? Yeah. Uh, do you have a question? Um, I have to think about that quote because we'll, we'll come back. <laughs> so in chapter three, uh, Brioni also asked, also questions if everyone else could be as real as she feels she is, and I put in, I quoted something from also from page sixty: the failure to grasp that other people are as real as you. Is this narcissistic, narcissistic behavior shown throughout the chapters that we've seen so far, like normal, you believe, for a child or age? Or what do you think like, this comes from? Like, what does this show about her? Um, I kind of have to like, disagree a little bit with the um, narcissistic tendency phrasing. I feel like because it's coming from someone who's so young, it does sound narcissistic. But if you look at it like, um, usually people, when they grow up, they do have those questions like the meaning of life. Like I felt like I was looking at it as like one of those questions, kind of the um, and the and how she is so young and like thinking about these questions, it does show her maturity. But um, I I definitely don't think it's narcissistic. I think it's more of um, her just like not thinking like, oh, am I the only one who has control? That way I think she's thinking up more of like, like I wonder how everyone else is thinking about this. And, you know, the, the whole question of like. So do you believe it shows like immaturity though? I thought it showed like oh, maturity actually. Maturity, okay. Because it shows like she's kind of advanced. Like I doubt Lola would be thinking like of how much control she has of stuff. That's true. I feel like it's a very like adult, grown up thing to think about. I have to agree on you with that, because like here we are now. I I would say I would be probably thinking that back when I was like younger a little bit probably, but like now I would not be thinking about that. So, like so she's like a mature for like her own age, a little bit too much mature to say. Um, do you want to go back to the first question? Yeah. So I mean, I can give you my insight on it. Um, so I'll reread it again. Um, so in chapter three, a quote stood out to me, which was the truth had become as ghostly as invention, which is on page 60. What do you think this line means? What does this tell us about the narrator's purpose in writing? And I said that it, well, I believe that it shows like her thoughts, that people have like different realities, shows that like no, no one knows the actual truth, which makes it like not real. You know, like a ghost. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> anyway, we'll go on to chapter. No, we can talk about that. I mean, one. if you want. I mean, yeah. Um, to me, the quote, like, when it says, like, can I say the quote for the comments? <laughs> so, like, to me, like, the quote, like, I want to say, like, the truth that people tell, or as, like, as, as much as the lies can be because like lies are like ghostly because they're not true and the truth can be as a lie in a sense i think it it is a very like interesting quote the truth has become as ghostly as invention um to look at it and i'm trying to look at it in a different way to get like different sides of it it's a complex quote yeah it, it is but um it's actually a really good quote now that makes me like want to think about it more to figure out like what it means 
That's a good quote you picked. Mm -hmm. um, this might not make a lot of sense, but I was kind of thinking about it in the way, like, um, if you think about, like, inventions, Okay, this is going like down a rabbit hole. Sorry. You gotta go there somewhere. Yeah. So if you think about inventions, it's kind of like um, that situation where it's not gonna happen until you put it into motion. So if I had a great idea for a water bottle that like talked to you, nothing's gonna happen with that invention or idea um, until I actually start manufacturing that water bottle. And I feel like that kind of relates to the truth, I guess, because it the truth is like just there and it's kind of everybody has their own truth you know that whole she said he said kind of thing and so the truth isn't um it's supposed to be like a solid thing you rely on but at that point I think the narrator's saying like the truth turned into like nothing until someone would mention it or put it into motion and like talk about what was going on Jocelyn you're up so, we actually kind of answered most of the two questions I actually said in like previous chapters because they're like there too. But there's one uh, whenever Cecilia um, is like around in the story, whenever we find her in the story, she either asks for a cigarette or has one and is smoking one. And so far, there has been a part where she has not been smoking, except for the fountain scene, if you count that. And even in the fountain scene, she, like, walks over to Robbie, like, yeah. after seeing him rolling his own cigarette. Yeah, um, and asked her one, too. Yeah, I and think, um, it, well, before we even read Atonement, Miss McGinnis, like, mentioned how um, to, like, look at cigarettes and the meaning behind them, and the meaning is, like, the phallic symbol putting, like, to your mouth, and it's kind of a symbolism for sex, and, um... In how to read literature, like professor, when it says like everything is sex except when it's not, it's kind of like weird because I kind of want to flip it around to where like so the cigarette like is symbolic for sex and sex is a very like powerful dynamic, and so I feel um, that's another like relating back to my first statement about Cecilia, like I think it's um, all about her control, how um, she kind of. Because, like, back then, it's, it wasn't a very, like, women-led society. And so I feel like she's kind of searching out for control. And she wants to be very um, independent. And as she's the one, like, seeking out the cigarettes, she's the one asking for it. She's the one, like, going into her room for the cigarette. Like, she's always initiating this. And um, when she first, first talks to, like, Robbie, her mind's on, like, cigarettes, so her mind's, like, about sex, and then when she first meets Paul, her mind's on, like, cigarettes, and because she's smoking a cigarette, and her mind's on sex, and she also mentions how every time she meets a new guy, she's like, oh, is this the one I'm gonna marry, and so I feel she, she's a very, um, kind of sex-driven person, but not in the terms of, like, that, she's kind of more in the, more, um, looking for control and everything, and, uh, like controlless situation she's in. So, what I thought about is um, make you one the author. There's so there's a lot of references to cigarettes in like these first couple chapters, uh, especially chapter two. But like a, something in cigarettes is like the I think it's like the addictive chemical is like nicotine, and I think like that's you know since that causes people to smoke. That also shows, that's a symbolism for her desire, 
or like sexual frustration, you know, and um, like there's a lot of sexual frustration there too. And just I think cigarettes show her addiction, I guess, or so. And um, I think it also shows that it's like it's hard to say, but like. Hmm, yeah, I wrote this down somewhere. Um, no one really feels comfortable talking about <laughs> yeah, well, of this course. school, but... Well, yeah. no, um... Okay, yeah, so, like, you know, with all this stuff happening, it seems like she's pretty stressed with the whole Robbie situation, so, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen in the media when they're, like, take the edge off or something like that, and that's helps her pass through whatever's happening to her, and it gets her off what is all the conflict and not conflict but you know just stuff that's happening between her and Robbie that's a really I really like that that's a cool way of looking at it because it's like um my my, that was my second question my first question would pertain to how both girls have a sense in need for control like Brian and her rehearsal wanting to go in order in her way and then Cecilia trying to control the situation at the dinner and how she wants Robbie uninvited, but she can't give Leon a good enough reason to uninvite him. I think you said it best when you said the whole chaos versus... Um, oh, disorder. disorder. Or, yeah, disorder. Yeah. Well, yeah, disorder versus yeah, order, yeah. Um, anyway, it seems like all the time we got today, folks. Thank you guys for joining me. Signing out, Tony Olivas. Jocelyn Arroyo, Mary McCollum. All right.